You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and Power Athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. Joining him is everyone's favorite coach and hair model, Chris, a.k.a. Tex McQuilkin, Power Athlete's Director of Performance. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. Now with the warm-up done, let the gains begin. Hey, welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. I'm John Walborn, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris McQuilkin, a.k.a. Tex. Howdy. And we are joined in the studio, in the podcast room, with... Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor. Matt Sanis. DPT, Power Athlete Coach, USA Shooting, Director of High Performance and Rehabilitation, as well as the owner of Rooted in Movement. Welcome back to the show, Matt. Doesn't Rooted in Movement sound like a CBD brand? It should be. Maybe it should be. It'd be a great CBD or like a weed line. Like Maybe here. we should collaborate with Turley. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, dude, he knows a lot about that stuff. I, uh, you know, did you ever notice, and we were talking about this yesterday, especially with cannabis, that cannabis solves everything. Your squat's not good? Smoke weed. Your foot hurts? Smoke weed. Your car broke down? Smoke weed. It's really the panacea. It's, it's the answer for everything. Unfortunately, if you're not into smoking weed and you're into performance, especially like ramping up performance like the squat, I think you've landed in the right place for us to discuss it because I'm excited to talk about the bilateral hip hinge, a.k.a. the squat. Yes, and this stems from a conversation we had at dinner last night, and what better than uh, a few marks to give you a good idea of what to talk about on the podcast the next day. And one of our pals was sitting with us, and he brought up the concept if he was looking for opportunities to activate and develop his posterior chain, and he brought up the box squat. He heard from a little bird that this is the best way or the only way, something very strong, dogmatic language for developing the posterior chain. He himself did it. He tried it. He may or may not have executed the movement incorrectly and left himself sore for a week. He couldn't necessarily walk. Mission was not accomplished. And we spent some time talking about that movement and the misdirected purpose. There's nothing wrong with the movement if you're going for a specific purpose, and we had an idea for it. And we're going to expand on that concept, not only the box squat, but the powerlifting squat, then our, our more fitness-friendly, narrower toes-out squat, and then reaffirm the positivity and the transfer of training from the power athlete squat, this toes-forward, universal athletic position overload, and expression through compensatory acceleration. Yeah, I think it's important to understand that they're really... There is no bad movement out there. There's no bad squat movement. Uh, it just depends on the intention that you set behind the movement, which, which I guess, um, stance you're, you're going to try and choose and, and what you're going to actually apply to in your training program or in for sport as well. Yeah. And standards, I think, is a, an appropriate way to mm-hmm. start because there are sports of squatting, like the powerlifting. You need to get hip crease below the knee. And then in the sport of exercise... You need to, for a landmark, for a marker, get your hip crease below parallel for a lot of movements like the wall ball. And it's a good place to start. That's the standard. But even in powerlifting, there's segments because you look at geared powerlifting versus raw powerlifting. And it's very difficult to squat raw with that very kind of positive or sorry, a neutral to negative shin angle like you'll see in the geared lifters. You know, when they have a ton of energy and a mm-hmm. bunch of... Uh, you know, canvas suits and wraps and the whole deal, you can sit back into a position because the energy of the suit and the way the setup works allows you to sit in a position that's kind of 
a little unnatural. I mean, more akin to what you do within box squatting. And the reason that there was so much carryover for the West Side guys to box squat because the position was identical to the position they would get into in their gear. So when you look at a more uh, raw power lifter, you know, that might not be utilizing the box squat, it's going to be a lot more, I mean, obviously a little bit wider, but there is going to be positive shin angle. The bar is going to be within the center of their body and it's going to be a more, what we would consider natural squat more so than that more kind of very upright position, which is, is just very specific to that part of the, of the sport. Yeah. And the, the standards, they apply to competition. So the aim of the, the box is to replicate, you know, sitting back into the suit as you would in competition. And I think that's where we draw the line because in the world of power athlete, we are training for something. So the expression of our heavy lifting or squats into some form of utility, whether it's on the field or, you know, in the backyard, knocking out what you got to do, being field strong. So now if it's the sport of lifting the competition and then the training, mm-hmm. well, we can get away with a lot different standard. If we're training for something, then the, it has to be this way or else it doesn't count in competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, um, it, I think it translates. Um, I think there's a segment in this where I, I believe here in power athlete land, at least in the way that I've always viewed it within my own training, was the squat was just a tool to help me develop power and position and strength and some of these other key fundamentals that we've discussed. But it was a great way to utilize it, but not the only way to utilize it. And, uh, you know, I think people fall in love with this idea of lifting weights and obviously, you know, maximal weights translates to, you know, better jumping, explosion, I mean, all these other key factors. So I use the squat um, extensively mm-hmm. and a bunch of the pulls. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, I was never getting paid to squat big weights. The weight and more importantly, the squat had to translate over to what I was doing with on the field. And for me, with the way that I played and my position and especially my stance and the way that I moved through space, uh, the way that I squatted had carryover. Um, but there were also other movements that were just as vital. So I think the issue I run into is where people just become so romanced with these movements as like the movement being the final product. And within powerlifting, it is. I mean, obviously, the training is what you're getting tested on. For me, the training had to translate into something on the field, just like when we work with the fighters or any other sport. Yeah, I mean, they do better when their squat goes up, but... You know, the squat has to translate into what they're doing. And if it doesn't make them better, then it doesn't make sense to do it. You know, it's not to say that if you put 100 pounds on everybody's squat, they get better. Usually it does translate. But what if it doesn't? Does that come down to the coach or the athlete? Have you selected the right movement? So I think just blindly trusting the world and being like, well, everybody needs squat 100%. Um, Is squatting going to make them better? We like to believe so. But at the end of the day, you have to run the test and you have to figure out if that narrative makes sense. And more importantly, find a movement, whether it be through a bar, whether it be within a foot position, uh, whatever it looks like, that allows them to be able to translate what they do in that up and down over into how they want to use it. You know, you you bring up the point about how you never got paid to lift big weights. There was a a reason, there was a purpose behind why you were squatting, because it is a fundamental movement pattern. And most people who are training in the gym also aren't getting paid to lift big weights either. They usually have just underlying reason. The purpose behind them is usually to look good, feel good, and increase their health, right? For the majority of gym goers, and sure, you might have some you know, local meat competitions where people are training for powerlifting meats or 
maybe even some CrossFit competitions. I'm sure we'll get into that type of stuff as well. Um, but that's why I like to look at the squat as a fundamental piece of human movement. Like we all should be able to squat. And that's where I can take a look at an, as an assessment with the squat and figure out how they've been moving for a long time. I could see what their training history is like based on how they perform just a basic air squat. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that you typically see with people who have been doing a very power lifting-esque style of squat of sitting back on a box or sitting back into the heels, um, and there's nothing back there in the heels but a fat pad and a bone, <laughs> yeah. they're not using the whole foot, you see them just fold over in the trunk. So they usually go down to about 90 degrees of hip flexion, and they take up the rest of the motion with lumbar, lumbar spine flexion, and they run out of room. So what happens there? We're either going to round over in the spine, we're going to stop moving, or you're going to fall backwards at that point, right? So we know they're not using at that point the whole entire foot to put the rest of the squat pattern together because you need the entire foot to be working functionally uh, with the hips to be able to create torque and rotation to clear the rest of that, uh, the, the femoral bone inside the acetabulum out so you can actually move down closer to your heels. Right. So once again, it all depends on what you're training for. Right. Yeah. I think that as humans, we should be able to squat down past 90 as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Matt, you take a different perspective. Mm-hmm. You're rooted in movement. So you take a big emphasis and, and focus on the feet. Not a lot of power lifters or sport of fitness folk have that same focus. I remember years ago when John and I were on the road, you know, you observe the on first the thing. On the road again. Yeah. First thing we started to look and it just... Our attention was always initiation hips, and then as we watched more and more and more people lift, mm-hmm. we started paying closer and closer attention to their feet, mm-hmm. especially as the nano shoe got popular. And, I mean, from there, we were forcing people out of those things just so we can get a better look and be in a better position to teach them our expectation of execution. So that that's an observation I had was just getting people out of their shoes so we can better accomplish what we were aiming to on the road. Yeah, the um, uh, the idea. Uh, I mean, dude, it's just really um, you know to go back to man, what, what did Cal Dietz's talk at Summer Strong when he was talking about um, creating strength and rigidity in the foot as a primary driver for allowing people to generate more force, whether it be in the squat, the jump, and everything, and that the limiting factor came down to weakness in the foot. So a lot of times when we would watch people squat, you know, we were kind of working like top down, you know, what is their trunk doing? You know, what is the back look? Can they support the weight? And we'd kind of like start at the top where the bar was. And then I would work down into the trunk, into the glutes, and you start getting down and you'd kind of work down. He looked at it from the exact opposite, and then you build from the ground up. And the weak feet being the biggest determining factor for their ability to be able to generate force. Mm-hmm. And that your body will not allow you to go into a range of motion where it, not, it will not allow you to be stable. Mm-hmm. So if the foot's weak, then you're pretty much stability's off the table. And we saw this all the time where we blamed it on squishy, shitty shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> now I think back on that, like, yes, it was the shoes, but was it also their weak feet? Because when we had people take their shoes off, that was even more interesting. Then we saw the big toe on the ground, not being able to track the knee over the insteps. And there's just what looked like weakness throughout the full chain. So, um, yeah. I, uh, like, I mean, this is the great part about learning and new information comes up. Um, the one thing we did universally realize, and that was, you know, we entered the dead bug into this, was the dead bug was used as a basic ISO stability test for us to assess athletes because there was almost a one-to-one between their dead bug and their ability to squat. But it really came down to their ability to maintain a neutral 
and stable trunk, which we felt was the biggest issue that people were running into. Whereas Cal looked at it like, if you have weak feet, you can't generate force. Uh -huh. Whereas we looked at it like the wet noodle model, <laughs> where if your center trunk midline was weak, then when you go press on the wet noodle, it doesn't move. Well, you need both, right? You need the strong trunk, you also need the strong feet. And it doesn't really matter which way you look at it, but you have to, you have to be able to connect the two eventually, right? And that's where um, Cal and I are, are in strong agreement with us focusing on the feet and working from the ground up, um, because he talks a lot about the big toe, driving that big toe in the ground, because it's, it's really a strong connection to the hip. It does drive the hip, but then also that big toe in particular, that first metatarsal head is also intimately connected with the pelvic floor mm -hmm. and that bottom portion of the trunk. Right, so you need that that bottom portion of your canister uh, to be in a good position and to be active to be able to generate force and to be able to generate load, especially that barbell on your back. If you can't keep a stable bottom of that canister, it's going to crumble. Mm -hmm. All right, and we need to get that connection point between the big toe. So when you see the big toe coming up when people are squatting, it's like a dead giveaway of like you can't you can't load your head, you can't organize your spine. We introduced limiting factors, the mm -hmm. term, and I feel like. Uh, from on the road, we pulled people away from belts because it became a limiting factor because of their trunk. Now, as we understand geared and lifting and all that, what kind of limiting factors are people working around by getting into the gear, the knee sleeves, the wrapping of the knees uh, into the suits and all that? What things are they just negating that could potentially say we are working with high schoolers, we're working with field court sports athletes, if they are taught to do all these mechanics, these wraps, and do all this just for bigger numbers, what potential limiting factors do we present that could show up on the field? Um, the gear has an interesting place. Um, I think it, uh, you know, and I'll use it within like an overload principle. Um, I remember, God, I can't remember, it might have been Jim Wendler. Um, made an interesting point to me that he had squatted a thousand pounds in gear. When he took the gear off, he felt really weak, like his like exoskeleton had been removed. Um, but what he ended up finding really quickly was once he went back to raw squatting and started developing his strength, the body adapted very quickly because it was used to handling all the pressure from the gear. So there was like a, a you know a down regulation, but then as it came back, he felt stronger than ever because his body had been able to handle the load, and he had uh, been able to handle that pressure. So I really believe that there is a place for gear, especially in an overload principle, uh, for athletes. Like let's say for example, you squat four hundred pounds, and for me, a belt was probably good for ten percent. Um, I felt the wraps were good for ten percent. So let's say I squatted uh, four hundred pounds. I throw the belt on and all of a sudden now I can squat a 440. I throw the wraps on and now I squat a 480. Um, at the end of the day, like, is it mechanically changing something? Maybe, is it moving a different movement pattern? But is it overloading the body in such a way that it's allowing me to handle a heavier weight or move more dynamically? Like as I come out of the bottom, the wraps are gonna you know, uh, constrict, allow me more elasticity to be able to bounce and be able to maybe catch more speed out of the bottom, so maybe greater compensatory acceleration. Does the body know? that the wraps are aiding to the speed or is it just know that it's moving fast? I don't know, but I believe there is a place for gear in terms of overload principle, just like um, the lightning method where they would throw bands on the bar and hook them on a rack. And when you would squat down, all of a sudden the bar gets lighter because the band uh, would extend and now you get more speed out of the bottom. So they use that for a lot of their cycles at Westside and we've used that um, in squat cycles where you try to uh, deload the bar to catch more speed, decreasing, uh, um, compensatory acceleration. 
So you can use these different principles to break through plateaus within training cycles to increase speed and, and work on bar speed. And we use them all. So I think there is a place for the gear and the wraps in terms of an overload principle or adding some element to it. But you're also talking about a more advanced lifter at the end of, uh, you know, trying to, you know, work a little bit of glean something out, you know, trying to squeeze the proverbial rag and get a few more drops. The issue comes down to, and I ran into this and I've told you this before, when we started training at Zangus's, it was a uh, very power lifter based. So we knew that we could squat more weight with belts and wraps. So, I mean, anything over 225, we started wrapping our knees and all of a sudden now you're basically taking this tight wrap and you're smashing your knee and your patella together and then you're trying to move through these different planes and I ended up developing tendonitis in association with it and um, you know, not knowing that it's a wrap which seems crazy, I just knew when I wrapped my knee it hurt like a motherfucker. <laughs> but we were squatting big weights so who give a fuck, right? It was supposed to hurt. So I think there was uh, a lot of stupidity in that and it wasn't until I took the wraps off and started squatting you know, sans wraps, maybe with just a belt when it got heavy, that actually developed more strength. And then I saw like, oh, okay, you use these at the very end for a little bit of overload principle. Like if I'm squatting, you know, singles, uh, you know, anything over 75%, maybe 80% I'm throwing a belt on. When I get to 90, I'm throwing on wraps. But then there's also the argument that you got to learn to squat and wraps. I never really felt like that. But there is a place for overload principle, but I think it's farther down the road to break through plateaus and with more advanced lifters, um, you know, the conjugate stuff, especially with the accommodating resistance, um, you know, there is great proof that proves the efficacy of using it within training cycles. But when they start looking at who it was used, um, and even though Louie and I disagreed on, he thought that beginners should be using, um, you know, singles, doubles, and triples and compensatory acceleration, which I think is universal, but that idea of accommodating resistance is helpful. But the issue comes down to when you use the bands and the chains, it's going to change the natural path of the bar. It's going to change how you're doing it. And so I think there's some really issues for it. I really think, at least in the way we've skinned this here at Power Athlete, there's a bedrock program that asks you to squat three by five, which is also ironic because Dr. Huberman just had a podcast where they were talking about the best way for people to get strong is they called it three to five, right? Three to five sets of three to five reps, three to five times a week which is pretty much very almost identical to the bedrock program and the one we've been touting and using for years. I just think it's funny. People, I saw that get posted and I'm like, shit, dude, we've been on that train for years, but there is uh, a very real template to allow people to get strong with just the bar and themselves and being able to follow that basic linear progression before you start kind of adding all these different pieces to the pie, which at the end of the day, just is going to change the movement pattern and change mm -hmm. the stimulus. But if the stimulus is working, why do you have to make changes? Yeah, I think there's a lot of, a lot of truth with that uh, as well, because at the end of the day, all that gear that people use, it's just a tool, right? It's just a tool. Maybe it's like the icing on the cake to help you improve, get breakthrough plateaus like you mentioned. Uh, but when it comes to like younger kids, and you know, I don't necessarily agree with having to learn the, the squat with wraps either. Yeah. I think that it's something that you can utilize later on because if we use it too early, you know, it's, I think it'll start to detract from your athletic, athletic potential. And typically when people come through my doors and they've been using all this gear, they're using it as a crutch. They're using the wraps and even something as, as simple as tight knee sleeves because their knees are bothering and they can't squat without them, mm -hmm. right? So it's adding a little bit of warmth to the joints, adding a little bit of compression to it. Same thing with the belts and low back pain. People, some people can't squat without the back. They use that as a crutch as well, because, you know, aside from actually figuring out what the root cause 
of that problem is. And, you know, specifically with the knees and the squat, when we start only using these, um, these wraps and these sleeves to be able to squat, all that additional compression, like you've been talking about, is neurological in nature. It's giving the brain the sense of security and stability that's after. And if we don't ever give the body an opportunity to learn how to create the safety, security, and stability itself, we're now detracting from them. We're actually doing that athlete a disservice, especially when it comes to the knee, because the knee has to be able to rotate to attenuate forces, which is driven by the foot. All right, so if we're constantly putting knee wraps on and sitting back to a box or sitting in a very, very strong powerlifting type squat, we're, never, we're going to be missing a lot of uh, pieces to that puzzle. And that's when we tend to overutilize the same tissues over and over and over again, which is going to re- lead to that pain response. Two notes on that. I want yes. to lead off with the teaching them properly. Now, belts, there's a certain way that it's taught that we're aware of. And then there's how we teach the dead bug, mm-hmm. which is a different form of bracing. So with the the note on the belts and these heavy-ass squats, John, what have you seen people coach the technique of a belt, talking about like pressing out into it versus what we're aiming to accomplish with the dead bug? And I'll hold my second question for Matt. Um, The way that um, most power lifters, and I can't say most, but at least the way the guys at Westside were doing is they were putting the belt on a little bit looser than you would normally would, and then they were pressing their bellies out to try to create as much air and as much surface area as possible. So belt a little loose, pressing the belly out, and then using that full belly. So, I mean, they would just just expand the belly and try to push against the belt and use that as kind of a rebound effect, which is a little different than when we teach it, where we teach about drawing in the trunk and trying to create that um, internal pressure and keep that dead bug at neutral position. And I think what's good is if you draw the belt in, especially using the breath belts, that's why I really thought the breath belt was pretty sharp, was that it almost teaches people when you put it on a similar response of what we're going for, for the dead bug. So, I mean, I remember the first time I threw it on, I was like, oh, shit, this breath belt. I mean, this is an easy way to throw people on and say, hey, this is the position I want you to be in in the dead bug. Feel it here in the breath belt. So um, I did appreciate it for that. Uh, I think there is, especially where we go a little bit tighter and being able to play, but I think there is a, a, a very real use for the belt. I mean, to the point where it was good for another 10% for me. Um, regardless of, I was never a big belly out pushing in. I kind of got a little bit tight, which added a little more stability. But I was always good for you know 10%, and I thought the wraps were good for anywhere from 5 to 10% as well. Any take on that as well? Yeah, uh, I think that from that component, you're, you're talking about using the belts as kind of almost like a learning moment, mm-hmm. right? We can get them into a good position, and the belt will provide some type of feedback to the athlete then of saying, hey, oh, this is a good position. We start to teach the the body to um, be able to accomplish that position without it as well. So I think the important piece there is, yes, we can use it as a learning tool, but then we also have to make sure that it is transferable without it at the same time. Um, What about different squat positions? I mean, you know, like we've, are we we there too quickly? No, this is, my next question leads to that. Okay. We're just, we're on the same way. Let's go on the next one. We're linked in sync. Take us there. Well, we've, we've talked about accommodating resistance. We've talked about a, a few other pieces, um, the squat stance, and more importantly, like the position of the squat. Like when you look at the West Side guys, and I always thought this was hilarious, um, you know, those guys were so massive, real wide stance, real toes out. But then talking to Louie and him and I, you know, connecting on the idea that toes forward being the most efficient way to generate force and then asking him, 
like, why do all your guys squat toes out then? And he's like, well, because their bellies are too big. They can't sit at a position. They don't have the flexibility. Yet. I mean, everybody should squat toes forward, but if you can't, they can squat toes out. But, you know, then you see a guy like Chuck Bogerpohl, who was, uh, did not have a big belly, was super fit. He was, you know, considered one of the best squatters ever. He was a big toes out guy. So it was an interesting kind of conversation with Louie where, like, we knew this was efficient, but the way these guys are set up and they have huge guts, they can't sit into it because they don't have the flexibility to be able to drive their knees out with the toes forward. Well, what about 135-pound CrossFitters that then do the same? Well, so when you look at CrossFit, the idea of unknown, unknowable, and the idea of increased work capacity, broad time, multiple domains, um, I always remember Glassman's comment that the prescription for grandma and Olympic athlete was the same. It was just a degree to which it was applied. So what they were looking at was, you know, what's the most efficient way to get somebody to squat to some form of imaginary depth? Today. Today, right? So like you go into your level one, you set up a med ball, you got to squat to that med ball. What they realized pretty quickly is that if you turn your toes out, it will unlock your hips. I mean, Mark Ripto teaches the same thing, you know, unlock the hips. And, you know, Matt and I had a good discussion about different um, types of hips and more importantly, like the depth of the acetabulum or acetabulums. Uh, asa. Acetabulum. Acetabulum. So <laughs> the deeper the hip uh, socket, the more restriction you'll have, the deeper you squat. The shallower the hip squat, uh, the shallower the hip socket, the deeper you can squat without pain. Um, and there's some interesting genetic uh, pools for this. Obviously, people of Asian descent have very shallow hip sockets, which allows them to sit in that position. I want to say it was like Eastern Europeans uh, tended to have deeper hip sockets, which didn't allow for the same unhinging and the ability to sit in a bottom position. If they did with great regularity, they would have, you know, more hip issues, which would lead to hip replacements. So, um, the positioning I think for an individual is going to be dictated upon how they're using the squat. If you're a power lifter and you want to sit back and you're sitting back into the energy, the most efficient position is probably going to be as wide as possible. When you start getting into something that looks like raw power lifting, you're going to see the stance comes in dramatically. Um, but it's not universal. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a big monster dude, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head, who is a West Side guy that does raw, that trains exactly like a geared lifter, and the guy's a fucking monster. Um, but if you look at the guys that are legit and legit, you know, big raw squatters, their squat looks more similar to what we would see something within a power athlete squat, base of the traps, slight little bit of lean in the chest, um, you know, shoulder width. And as they drive, their knees are going to track over their insteps. I mean, obviously the foot position is going to differ, but, um, you know, you take a look at, uh, you know, some of these big time squatters, uh, it actually looks very similar to how we're coaching individuals. So I think there's got to be carryover now for me. And I remember Louis said the wider the stance, the more carryover to narrow. I never felt that pulling or squatting wide did much to develop my hips in terms of squatting narrow. Um, but maybe that was Louis' take. Um, but I don't know, maybe I never gave it enough chance. But for me, somewhere it was about shoulder width apart. Um, have I box squatted? 100%. Um, I've done it on numerous occasions. Um, did I see carryover in it? Yeah, I saw value in the idea of basically hitting a position, pausing, taking the stretch shortening cycle, and then being able to drive out of a position I thought was beneficial. Um, but for a lot of our athletes, we're looking for a smooth accentuation phase, the ability to transition between eccentric and concentric and have that smooth accentuation phase, which translates into compensatory acceleration, being able to drive the bar out. So, And also as carryover towards sprinting and running and jumping and landing and all the other key factors that we're trying to develop with the squat. So I think it really comes down to 
how are you using it, how you're set up physically and anthropometrical ratios, and more importantly, what allows you to have your best squat. Because I believe every individual I've met has their best squat, but it takes you as a coach to get them into the right position, whether it be foot position, width, um, you know, bar. We've seen people that have had shoulder impingements that can't get in the right spot no matter what they do. So then instead of fighting it, what do we do? We throw the safety squat bar on, use the kabuki bar. We've also brought people in and adjusted the kabuki bar in different ways to help them find their best squat. Because at the end of the day, I'm not married to the movement. I'm just move, I'm married to the execution and helping them create their best squat, which allows them to translate to what they're using it for, which should be you know, developing and fostering athleticism, being successful within sport, and getting stronger, which allows them to translate into doing bitch and shit. Yeah, I think you're speaking to a lot of genetic variability traits there, uh, as far as hip depth, like the socket depth, uh, and then the idea of being either retroverted or introverted. So hips tend to either want to sit in a lot of external rotation or sit in a lot of internal rotation. And that's going to differ from person to person, and you may see it to different degrees, and you also might see it from left hip to right hip. There might be asymmetries there as well, depending on how you're, how you're built. And there's, there's a bunch of different ways you can test for it, um, either laying on your back and just watching the natural drift of the hips, do the legs turn out, do they, does the foot turn in, or even laying somebody on their stomach and rotating the leg with the knee bent in and out and seeing how much play is actually in the, in the internal ex or versus external rotation phase. What I, what I don't like, though, is when people use these uh, genetic predispositions as an excuse to why they can't do a certain movement because I think it takes a lot more work and effort and playing around and experimenting to find out what that best squat position is going to be for you mm -hmm. because a lot of times you'll see people who turn the feet out and just claim that their hips are built that way but what they're really doing is just making up for a lack of ankle dorsiflexion. Mm -hmm. They don't have the ankle mobility to squat with the toes a little bit more narrow, a little more forward and then quite honestly they probably haven't even either been given the right tools or haven't put enough time and effort in into improving that ankle mobility to put them into their best squat position. How do you feel about blocking the heels up and like uh, elevating? I mean, mm. we've, we've been using it pretty extensively where we've been elevating the heels, which allows um, more positive shin angle uh, because sometimes the lack of range of motion in the dorsiflexion becomes a limiting factor. Mm -hmm. So you can either fight it, and I think you have to constantly learn to train it. We find some other ways to kind of constantly challenge. But, you know, Chris's ankle, I know, is a little banged up, so does it make sense to continue to bang it? Or just elevate the heel a little bit, which allows him to get a more positive shin angle what, and have a better squat. We, I do different manipulations, but then we work that into different programmings, like the staggered stance. Mm -hmm. So I'm not just saying, hey, I cannot do this. I'm still targeting my Achilles because I, I, I still sprint, change direction, and play sports. So I know the importance of my Achilles. So still targeting it with the staggered stance. And then uh, we, we have a podcast, I'll check out the number, we went into great depth on different uh, foot position manipulations and purposing for it. Uh, so I'll look that up, but at the same time, mm -hmm. it gives Matt an uh, opportunity to answer that. Yeah, I think that um, the most important answer to this question is that variability matters. Like it's important to be able to squat in many different types of positions, being uh, toes forward, toes out. Um, also with knees together versus knees wide and you know every angle in between there and then also with the forward shin angle versus a more uh, vertical shin angle mm -hmm. they all have some utility uh, but as far as uh, understanding like what you're doing when you're elevating the heel if, if you're using it to uh, just be able to to squat and not actually work on the ankle then that's a problem however I think it's also a really great way to teach the body how to find weight over the midfoot 
because you elevate the heel, it's gonna push you there. And you could put yourself into a more forward chin angle, get a little more tension throughout the knee and start to teach them that rotation in the foot that's gonna allow you to get the necessary torque and rotation through the hip as well. And I actually really love it uh, for people who are kind of banged up or maybe have some back pain stuff because then it'll put you into a more vertical uh, torso position as well, which will take a lot of the sheer forces off the spine and the importance there is that we're keeping people moving. That's the idea, right? How, how many different ways can we work around to, to work through an injury and not just stop doing movement, right? Because that seems to be a, a big, big problem. Man, the, I've always believed um, you should not stop training due to injury. Mm -hmm. You need to learn to train around injuries. And I think there's a, a piece of like, whether it be agility or just like creativity, where if something's banged up or I can't do something, I'm more interested in like, okay, I know what you can't do, but what can you do? Four injuries. Well, John's for, not talking about limiting factors. No, I'm talking about like whether it be an injury or a limiting factor. Well, or, we don't well, want to work well, around well, limiting lim factors. Yeah, not limiting factors. So I think you're constantly challenging them. But if you have an injury or something that is like kind of set in stone, and I know we all have them. Mm -hmm. You know, I have uh, that door stop in the back of my knee, which, you know, prevents me from reaching a certain position, but it doesn't stop me from training. I just find other creative ways to do it. You know, I know, uh, you know, you with your ankle and I think what's, uh, what was your, was it your wrist? Um, personality. Person. <laughs> personality. Hair. Yeah, for sure. But like, uh, the hair gets in the way uh, a lot. Like we, we've had this over for many years. People have come and trained to us and been like, hey, I can't do this today. And so instead of just like, okay, you can't do that. We're not going to do this. We find what you can do and then continue to challenge what you can't and like in smaller increments. So like, you know, it's not like, well, you know, you can't stabilize a bar, so we're just going to start with a bar. No, we're going to find something else and we're going to continue to work on it. So I think having that uh, movement agility and that understanding of how to maximize an individual's output through other means than just conventional, I think where a lot of people get stuck is they only have so many tools in the toolbox. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've uh, hopefully have so many tools that like, you know, we can go through a Rolodex and find what you can do so that you continue to you know, make improvement and keep generating output and keep working towards your goal. I think that's important too because I look at injuries and pain as actually being blessings in disguise. There's a silver lining there, right? You're moving in a way that your body can't utilize that pattern anymore and it gives you an opportunity to explore more patterns. And the cool part about that is now you have more tools for a toolbox, right? You become a more robust system. You add more variability to the system. When we do that, that becomes a hallmark of like a really healthy biological system for the body. So... Well, just a, a quick note going back, Power Athlete Radio episode 384, this is where you and I, John, got into an internet debate, and the guy just blocked us rather than continuing. Oh. So then we brought I, it to the podcast. I do. So <laughs> give you a little context. Um, uh, should in, sprinters squat toes forward? Yeah, so this guy posted this question, and then, of course, you know, the interwebs tagged me, and I went in there, and I thought I'd left a very eloquent response, and so did Chris. And all of a sudden, it just melted down into some like just toxic deal. Blocked. And blocked, which is, you know, the standard way you deal with that. But um, the one thing is, I don't believe the guy actually trained sprinters. And I'm pretty sure he never trained anybody to squat toes forward. So I think he had latched onto a cool little Instagram um, handle. But I don't know if he'd ever actually trained athletes. So there's a great illusion that if you pull just a cool Instagram handle, and then you kind of make a website and some content, 
um, that includes some Franz Bosch and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And you throw a little bit of, you know, Derek Hansen and a few things in. Outlandish claims. Yeah, make outlandish claims and then actually make the illusion that you train athletes, but you really don't. I think that's just way a way to like gather some internet cred but it was pretty interesting in the exchange to realize that one this guy had fucking probably never trained anybody let alone actually trained him in the weight room or let alone on the track so uh, and i think i even called him out on him like dude just because you have a, a cute handle like doesn't give you chops to ask these questions and then when people throw out and disagree with your take on it now all of a sudden you get butthurt so and when he blocked us we just brought it to the podcast as you should yeah, yeah. by the way i searched for the instagram handle barefoot jesus Try and take that one. It's mm. taken already. Mm. As it should be. Sorry about that. By a barefoot Jesus. <laughs> so, <laughs> who's got 35 followers? Uh, maybe, maybe he'll sell it. Yeah. Maybe he'll sell it. Be like, I'll send you <laughs> one $10, what's it, Uber Eats card. Yeah. It's my million dollar idea. I got to get that handle first, though. I like it. Yeah. Sweet. You can make beads. <laughs> already got them. Yeah, I know. I see. Well, to them. Matt, if people want to learn more and hear about this uh, venture towards being the, the barefoot Jesus. <laughs> Where can they find you on the internet? Uh, I'm very active on the Instagrams. So going at my handle at rooted in movement and movement is all, all consonants. There's no vowels there. It's just M V M N T. Or you can actually hit me up at uh, Matthew at rooted in movement.com or check out the website rooted in movement.com. And movement stands for movement, vitality, mindset, nutrition, and training. So very holistic, very robust. Oh, you've turned movement into an acronym? Sure did. Of course, you have to. I love it. Yeah. I learned from Kelly. Yeah, that will happen. Cool. Well, thanks for tuning in. Another episode of Power Athlete Radio. Bye. 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 This episode of Power Athlete Radio is powered by Train Heroic, the most immersive strength training app experience on the market. We've built our online training business by partnering with Train Heroic and helping us deliver all of our world-class training programs like Jack Street, Field Strong, and Grindstone. To learn which Power Athlete training program best suits your goals, head to powerathletehq.com training. And if you're a coach looking to build a business with the best tech and training, go to trainheroic.co forward slash powerathletehq.